This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. What do you get when you cross a generous group of mates, a love for numbers, and a passion for change? Our next guest's first entrepreneurial quest, Teach, Learn, Grow. I'm so excited to welcome Dave Sherwood to the show today. He's a Rhodes Scholar, Forbes 30 Under 30 listee, and has started not one, but two educational initiatives. What started as a group of friends tutoring rural students evolved into Teach, Learn, Grow, a thriving organisation with over 500 volunteers helping thousands of students reach their educational potential. Teach, Learn, Grow was Dave's first dip into the pool of entrepreneurship. His second, BibliU, an educational content platform providing students with all of the educational content that they need at any time. Think Spotify, but for books. I'm super stoked to be talking to Dave today about the story behind starting two successful education initiatives, the challenges he faced when scaling his organisation and how to surround ourselves with the right people. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these awesome Forbes 30 Under 30 listees. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the brilliant Dave Sherwood. Dave, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thanks, Michelle. Excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn and when I looked into you and all the awesome work you're doing with BibliU, I knew I had to have you come on the show, so I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. It's great to be on a podcast to talk about entrepreneurship and education. Love that. Um, also very excited at the fact that we're in the UK, but it's two Aussies connecting on the show, so it's super cool. Great. So, look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, I'm Dave Sherwood. I'm the Chief Executive and Co-Founder of BibliU. And BibliU is an educational content platform. It makes learning more effective, but in simple terms, it's a platform where you can get any textbook on any device anytime. So, you think about like Apple News or Netflix or Spotify. It's that type of experience for a university student for their textbook consumption. And the best bit is the university pays, so it's free for the student. Love that. Super cool. Okay. And I definitely want to dive deeper into this 
you know, creation of yours. But before we do, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I actually grew up um, outside of Bunbury, a small city in Western Australia. Um, Mum and dad had a farm near Dardanup, so a really, really small town um, outside of Bunbury. And uh, I spent most of my childhood there. And then obviously as I went to school and that sort of thing, I spent more time in Bunbury, which is where both of my primary school and high schools were. Um, I think anyone that's grown up in the country has like a very different start to life than those that have grown up in the city. And I think there are many aspects to that. Uh, the community is very strong, so everybody knows everybody and people look out for each other, which um, some cities have, but uh, as we all know, some cities don't. And I don't know, that sort of sticks with you really. And I think a lot of people that grew up in the country often like to move back to the country at some point later in their life. And I think also, particularly in Australia, typically in the country, uh, educational outcomes are, are suffering, as it's fair to say. And that's not true of all schools and all country places. I'm certainly very lucky, I think, with um, Bunbury Senior and Bunbury Primary were, were solid schools. But as, as a broad picture, it's certainly safe to say that's the case. So I think... Once I moved to Perth and, and started studying at the University of Western Australia, it became very obvious that here were uh, kids that had had a very easy start to life and relative to some of the people I grew up with in, in Bunbury, things were a lot tougher from an educational perspective. So I, I think that really sort of got me thinking about education and, and sort of was the original motivation for getting more involved in education. Um, and a, uh, many of my good friends from Bunbury have, have stayed with me f for life. And, and um, Travis Elliott, who was the co-founder of Teachers Learn Grow, he was a teacher himself. He trained in Bunbury at ECU and, and uh, went on to become a school teacher. And he also sort of got me more involved in education as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I think growing up in a, a, a country place is a great thing for, for any uh, any family I think they're really nice places to to grow up so overall I very much enjoyed it um, I think when I reached my late teens it was clear that uh, I wanted something new I wanted to move to a city uh, and then later on I wanted to move to a bigger city from <laughs> Perth so that's how it happened really yeah I love asking that question I always find understanding kind of you know where you grew up or when the founder grew up and, and, and how that's kind of influenced, you know, what you're doing now and your choices. It, it really, I feel like it really does play a role in later life, you know, how we were brought up and all of that. So talk to us a little bit about what you love to do as a child, you know, did you always build things? Were you, uh, you know, out in the yard all the time? Like what, what, what did you love to do? It's a good question. Um, I really enjoyed spending time at the beach. My high school actually like overlooks the beach in Bunbury, which is beautiful. And we spent a lot of time during phys ed class doing water activities. So that was a big part of my upbringing. And to be honest, the one thing I miss most about Australia, being here in London and in New York, is the beach or access to a really beautiful beach. So there's definitely that in my environment. Uh, I really enjoyed soccer. I still play soccer now, support Leicester City Football Club. So that sort of stuck with me. Uh, I played ever since I was about nine years old. Um, dad sort of twisted my arm. I wasn't super keen at the time, but uh, twisted my arm and got me into soccer. And yeah, in terms of where I spent my time, I did spend quite a lot of time outdoors. I think growing up on the farm, 
you can sort of just free roam, right? Which is which is pretty pretty cool. Something that a city kid may may not have uh, the same ability to do. And as well as that, uh, my like parents, particularly my mum, was quite keen on me not spending too much time watching television and movies and computer games and all that sort of stuff. And I, I obviously, I obviously did do those things, but she's very much like you, you can do those things for this window of time and then you need to go outside or you need to speak to your friends or hang out with your family. So I think that was really important as well. And I feel it's quite good for the imagination, not, not spending too much time in front of a screen, which is kind of feeding you information, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that sort of describes it. Yeah, mm, I love it. I think it's, yeah, it, it, it's super cool to see kind of, yeah, just that that natural progression. Like obviously, always being outdoors, always doing things, and and always kind of staying active. You know, I think it, in big cities, it's it's a different type of staying active. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's not always as you know, refreshing if you. <laughs> want to put it that way yeah. but um no I love that okay so talk to us a little bit about the transition then to university so you went to the big city of Perth and you know <laughs> you know from there you know to Oxford to many other places you know so talk to us about that transition there well a part of the thing growing up in a place like Darden up in Bunbury is like from quite a young age it's clear that you're going to probably move somewhere and so I was lucky when I was uh, 16, I went to do a science program in Canberra. And so that sort of started the phase of like moving is not that hard. It seems hard um, and it seems like you're leaving your friends behind or, or whatnot, but really it's not that hard, particularly as a young person. So I think I developed that mindset quite young. And even when, when I moved to Perth, um, it felt like my sort of natural transition rather than something that suddenly happened. And that sort of stayed with me. Like I spent a summer in Melbourne, a summer in Switzerland. Woo, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer Sydney to be honest, oh, but, but no, I, no, I do no. have we, a soft have spot for the coffee. This. We have to stop this right now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, as you said, uh, Oxford uh, and London and then more recently New York. So, so that sort of moving has become, you know, normal to me and, and sort of like a next phase. Yeah, but at the time, I mean, you raise an interesting point. Perth seemed like the biggest place in the world. I mean, I'd not been to um, many other cities and going from a city of 20,000 people to a city of a million or so seemed like, yeah, the the biggest step up you could possibly make, Um, which in retrospect, I think is quite funny, but so I felt at the time. And yeah, I I really love university. I think UWA was a great um, place to be particularly going through those sort of formative years, 17, 18, 19, 20. Interestingly, West Australia used to let people go to university at 17, so couldn't get a rental contract, couldn't get a credit card, couldn't drink, which, you know, that's understandable for a 17-year-old, but it's quite challenging when you're living out of home and you've got all these sort of constraints around you as well. But we all turned 18 during that first year, so so, um, it's just a bit of a quirk of, of how the school system works, I suppose. Um, and yeah, it was at university that I think I developed, um, you know, uh, my key interests. So I went from being essentially a bookworm, someone that really liked studying, <laughs> that was most of my high school, um, to somebody that was really interested in entrepreneurship and education. All of that happened between 17 and 21 at, at UWA. 
And I think it was largely the people around me that sort of encouraged that. So as I said, Trav, who, who, who's a friend from Bunbury, uh, but the Fogarty Scholarship Group were really active in trying to encourage us to do more outside of study. And they were very generous in providing scholarships. So most of us didn't have to have part-time jobs. We had some sort of bursary thing. And I think if I hadn't had that, I would have been working part-time jobs. So it would have been hard to do volunteering and, and, and whatnot. And it was when I was 19 years old that uh, co-founded Teach, Learn, Grow with, with Trav. And Teach, Learn, Grow essentially provides free mathematics tutoring to rural and Indigenous kids. Currently does about 20,000 hours a year. So, yeah, a, a significant chunk, about 40 rural primary schools. And uh, what would it be? 400 tutors, about 1,000 students, 2,000 students, like primary students. So it's a, a big operation and largely volunteer-driven, very small budget. So... Yeah, but originally Trav and I, uh, you know, had uh, been travelling in Europe and as you do as, as, as a young person. Classic and Europe trip. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we just got, he's a very sort of political, philosophical guy, so we'd have like all sorts of conversations about how the world's going and all this sort of stuff. And we decided that, you know, studying was great and socialising was great. You know, the two things we're kind of spending most of our time doing at uni. But we felt that we should give back. I think being from a rural place ourselves, um, we felt we should give back to a rural place. You know, we were lucky enough to, to, you know, have the opportunity to study and work in Perth and that's, you know, not, not afforded to all rural kids. So we kicked that off. But originally it was just like a, a bunch of friends doing some tutoring. The, the idea was we'd volunteer, not that we'd create an organisation. I think we're very lucky um, unlike BibliU, uh, Teach, Learn, Grow hit product market fit immediately. And uh, it just became obvious that it'd be very easy to get more volunteers because it was really fun to do. And also that it's something that we sort of should be expanding. So I, I suppose I fell into entrepreneurship by accident, really, which is... I always say this. <laughs> yeah. We'll dig deeper. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of interesting how it all comes about. But uh, mm. so it was a group of friends, and the idea was that at the end of term, ten or so would go to a rural primary school, and we pick three springs, and provide free maths tutoring there. But you sort of get you get a really powerful sort of. Uh, uh, what's the word it, because you're together for a week and you're living together and you're working mm. together away from home you get a really powerful sort of bonding experience from it and we didn't really foresee that um but at the end of it we the whole group had felt that we'd really had an impact on the kids but also that was really enjoyable for us that uh trav and i were like well we could easily do five schools if, if we had the money to mm. do that and it sort of went from there really yeah Super cool. It's it's so interesting hearing that how that all pieced together now. Reading about it and, and kind of looking at what it is now, it can it almost seems like wow, almost untouchable, like wow, this full organization that's all that's all, you know, happening. It's all pe- all the pieces of the puzzles are together. But it's like how did that actually happen? And hearing this, it was just it was just you know, you guys just came up with this idea. You were like, we'll start with one school and then from there. So talk to us a little bit about how you then scaled that to so many. It's a really good question. I think most people assume that mm. a business leader or an entrepreneur has some natural ability to scale things or pe- like work with large teams and whatnot. But the reality is at 19, Trav and I were 19, <laughs> is we had no idea what we were doing. And we made 
many, many, many mistakes that uh, you would make if you had no training and, and minimal mentorship. So one of the classic examples is micromanagement. So we would, when we went from one to five, instead of having volunteers help us with the admin or organizing the thing, we decided we could do most of it ourselves. And then we'd just have volunteers doing the tutoring. And so when you're going from like 10 to 50 tutors, five schools, like a couple hundred kids, it just scaled really poorly. And I think (laughs) one example was on the week before we went out to the schools, Trav and I were making the tests for the kids. Obviously the sensible thing to do would each tutor makes three tests but Trav and I were making, what, 150? <laughs> <laughs> so I remember wow. staying up late one night. It was early hours of the morning and just thinking that we're doing it completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, This can't be it, <laughs> yeah, surely. This, this can't be the way to do it. Yeah. And there were many, many other examples like that. I think we really didn't know how to manage people. And yeah, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, it's, it's all, all, all a bit of a joke. But... <laughs> But I think, you know, with motivation and uh, enthusiasm, you can push through those sort of things and most importantly, learn. So, so we'd look back after running that program and we looked at it and we're like, well, we're going to have to change things we did. Otherwise, it's not going to work going forward. How can we be better at looking back at, at what we've done and like assessing ourselves? Well, that's a good question. I think... You need to surround yourself with honest people. It's very easy to surround yourself with people that support your point of view. I suppose there's a balance at the end of the day because you need, you need the, the organisation needs a clear vision. So if everybody's disagreeing all the time, it's a problem. But if everyone's just agreeing all the time with the, the leader, that, that's probably worse, to be honest. So if you surround yourself with honest people, um, and Trav's an extremely honest guy, uh, you're pretty upfront with each other about what's working, what's not. You've always got to listen. And I think most importantly, you've, you've got to care. I think a lot of people can take feedback and it just bounces off them. And that's fine because obviously you've got to stay motivated, but if you're not listening, then you're not going, going to make progress. And I guess the final piece is like try and find people that have done it before, right? And so the first example of that I had, I read Wendy Kopp's book. She's the founder of Teach for America. And her book was so similar to to our first year or two, like very similar mistakes, like micromanagement, not prioritizing, funding, just little things like this. And reading it, I was like, if I'd read this before or if I'd had someone like Wendy to talk to, we could have dodged a lot of the potholes along the road. Um, The founder of uh, Canvas, I met him uh, a year or so ago, and he was saying, you can never be exactly sure you know, where to go, what direction is the best, but you can speak to someone who has a map and they can tell you where the potholes are, right? And I think that's a really powerful analogy as to like what the best way to to go about solving a problem is, use existing expertise where possible, yeah. So interesting. I, I couldn't agree more. How do we find those mentors that w- can guide us throughout this journey? You know, you said at the start when you were 19 with this first company, the first business, it was just you figuring it out. But how can we find those key mentors? Well, I think more often than not, you have to, fo- like, you have to proactively go and find them. I think uh, as as things progress, like interesting people find you as well. Um, So it can go both ways, but really you should get an idea. So like Teach Grow, educational charity, logistically moving a lot of people. 
that, that's sort of the key challenge, I suppose. So which other charities do similar things? Obviously, Teach for America uh, is one. Many other examples. Um, actually, Andy Fogarty's been a great mentor too, and she runs a scholarship program as well as a, um, many charitable programs. So, so I guess I sort of started to think about who has tackled a similar problem before, and then just generally most people are pretty pretty happy to help give a helping hand if you message them on linkedin or somehow find an introduction you just ask for a coffee explain that you know you, you think they've done a great job and <laughs> you'd like to learn a bit from them i think you rarely find them turn you down sometimes it might you have to wait a couple of months to meet them and whatnot but i'm sure you've had the <laughs> same experience michelle reaching out um yeah i think you just got to be bold and reach out and hope for the best hmm. I hope for the best we do. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's, it's, um, it's always so refreshing to talk about the, you know, the, just the constant, you know, not struggle, but just constant persistence in like reaching out. If they don't respond, it's okay. You know, keep reaching out. It's all good. Um, just in a previous podcast we did um, earlier today, we were talking about this exact same thing. And um, she was saying that Marianne was saying that she reached out for six months and then finally they responded and something amazing happened out of that. So I think it really does come down to that persistence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Teach Learn Grow, we badly needed the funding for, for five schools, right? Because mm. you need funding to send the tutors out and pay for their food and um, get the educational resources done. And Trav and I had contacted loads of sponsors, cold email, cold mm. call. We weren't very good. You know, we didn't really know what we are doing. <laughs> but we got to a point where we basically had given up. We're like, you know, we've emailed, I don't know, 50 now. We've heard back from one or two and they weren't interested. And we got to get back to our university. So, so you know, that's kind of it. And then funnily enough, um, I followed up with a couple of them that didn't respond. And one of them got back and decided to push ahead. So, yeah, it is really interesting how how important persistence is. I think it's a really good point. Mm. I love that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I want to dive into your travels because I just find it absolutely fascinating. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about the progression from, you know, Oz to London, then you, you studied the Oxford for a bit there, and then you went to New York. Like, talk to us about that period there. So... Coming to the end of my degree, I, I, I was studying chemistry at, at UWA. It was very clear that uh, lab work was not for me, <laughs> that I'm someone that likes thinking and not really someone that likes being in a lab running repetitive experiments. It, it's tough work. I remember sitting in a lab for a full day, like eight hours, um, counting the number of cells in a, in a microscope. And it's quite a manual process. And that sort of work, I just... One, I, I didn't really like, and two, I'm honestly not that good at. <laughs> so I think it became obvious that like teach, learn, grow was something that I sort of had a knack for, most importantly enjoyed, and chemistry was not something I was enjoying and not something I was good at. And so at some point, and it's funny, it like sort of snuck up on me. I think it was just suddenly one day I realized that that was the case because for, for years I just assumed that chemistry was where I was going. And uh, it was at that point that I decided to, entrepreneurship was what I wanted to do, teach and grow preferably, get to the end of the degree. Teach and grow didn't have enough money to pay a, a full-time or even really a part-time at that point. So I had th three options, raise some money for teach and grow, get a full-time job um, with teach and grow, get a job or um, get a scholarship and keep, keep the process going. So I applied for all three um, and they all kind of worked out and then I started stuck with this choice. So <laughs> I got the Rhodes Scholarship, was 
credible and somewhat lucky, I think, right, right place at right time. Um, interned with a consulting group and they made me an offer, which I had, had to um, postpone. So didn't take up that opportunity. And then Teach Learn Grow had the money for a job. So, but beautifully, I, I took the Teach Learn Grow job for a year because Oxford and Australia have different academic years. So there was a gap of nine months between. And so I could work for Teach Learn Grow during that time, which was, it made it very clear to me that um, entrepreneurship was what I wanted to be doing. It was the first time I'd done it full time and didn't have to think about study. Oh, and also I just loved not having to think about study. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a plus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then so during that nine months, I was putting together a transition plan for TLG, new chief exec. We finally had money so we could actually hire a new chief exec so that when I went, there'd be someone in place. And we got a wonderful chief exec at the moment, um, Bridget in Australia. Uh, but then at the end, kicked off the travels. So uh, the group, we, we get given a fixed budget to travel from home country to Oxford. And the group, probably three years before me, decided that a flight was boring and that you could use the budget in a more creative way. <laughs> and they, they decided to uh, fly to Beijing with because there's a road scholar for each state and then there's three national scholars which could be from any state or territory and so um alice decided that she'd get the group together fly to beijing and then catch the trans-siberian to moscow and then i think their original plan was to train into london but i think the visa situation in eastern europe can be challenging so i think they got to moscow and decided easier to fly to london and so they had this blueprint of a trip and uh, yeah, we just took it on and, and copied it. And probably about half of my cohort came with me, um, Jeff and Mandy and uh, Eden and James. And it was a great trip. Yeah, really, <laughs> really fascinating. And I, I've always been somewhat fascinated with um, Russia and the communist history. So I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, but actually on the trip, uh, sort of circling back to entrepreneurship, I um, obviously had handed Teach, Learn, Grow over. So we had a new CEO at that point. And it, it felt kind of like I'd given up part of my soul or something because, like, this thing that had been so important in my life for suddenly very small part of my life and someone else was managing it. And I wanted to do something else, create something else. And I was sure that that's what I wanted to do for my career. Um, so firstly, I picked a degree at Oxford that I thought wouldn't have many contact hours because chemistry has, like, eight-hour labs and crazy stuff like that. So I picked politics, philosophy, economics. <laughs> I think we had on average three or four contact hours a week. So that was perfect for like doing other things. And uh, what I needed to do was come up with a concept. So like what, what would I do for this next project? And the beauty of the Trans-Siberian is you have long periods of time, no internet. <laughs> and because you're with the same group of people for like two weeks on a train, you know, you, you obviously run out of conversation. It's just normal. So the long periods where you're sort of reading, thinking, just enjoying the silence, really, which is hard to come by in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And I took a lot of that time to just think about different business ideas, came up with many terrible ideas. Uh, I'm not going to share too many of them. One of them was essentially Salesforce, but a Salesforce already existed at the time. But in my <laughs> mind, I I'd thought of like a more like complicated thing and didn't really compare it to Salesforce. So that would have been a disaster. So good thing we didn't, that was sort of close second idea. Good thing we didn't go down that path. And uh, the other was Biblio, uh, although originally the idea was um, just broadly books, making books and uh, the software used to consume the book or read the book um, better, and uh, we refined it from there. But the reason I chose the book is because if you looked at the phone, 
everything had drastically changed. So like Spotify had changed music, business model software, completely changed the user experience, Netflix, even the email system, like the mailbox system with um, the swiping rather than having to open an email and archive it and whatnot. Uh, the calendar system, everything, really everything I was doing on the phone, Apple News ha- had like drastically changed from the early 2000s. Whereas books, and I read quite a lot on my phone then and I, I still do, uh, the, you use the book almost the same way you, you use a physical book and the price point is the same, often exactly the same. And I just thought, you know, this the software can do a lot more than what it's doing here. And then in Oxford, um, I incorporated the company in the first week, but it was in Oxford that the idea was sort of refined down to textbooks and uh, university students and sort of focus on teaching and learning rather than just reading. Uh, and so, yeah, well, the first year in Oxford was sort of like compiling the idea, bringing the team together and kicked it off from there. Mm. Super interesting. I think there's... It's so funny what you can do, you know, when you're, as you said, when you're on um, a place with no internet for two full weeks and you've got to figure some stuff out. I, I love that. <laughs> Definitely put that time to good good use. I think what I find really interesting about you is the fact that when you say, when you make a decision in your mind, you really do stick to it and <laughs> it, it seems to be and you really kind of go, yep, that's it. And the week I got there, we incorporated the company like, most of so many of us struggle with this we struggle with sticking to what we think is right for us or sticking to what we say we're going to do you know what advice would you would you give to our peers out there listening who struggle with this you know with this idea of just sticking to something yeah i think you know as as you said before persistence is really the key thing to to building an organization but really um the, the key thing is co-founders. Mm. I think a simple example is exercise or the gym or whatever. You're much less likely to go by yourself than you are with a friend because if you have a friend or two friends, you have that social pressure. It's hard to cancel on them on the day because they're going to go and all, all of this. And so teach and go. I worked with Trav from day one and we motivated each other a lot. So it was really credit to, to, to Trav. And then Bibli U, uh, I started by myself, but I knew I would need co-founders. But interestingly, the period that I was working on by myself, things were moving much, much, much slower than I'd expected. I didn't realize how critical a co-founder is in motivating, but also sort of like bouncing ideas, splitting mm-hmm. responsibility. It's also double the amount of people or triple the amount of people. So I think it's a lot harder really, Michelle, to do something like yourself, which is much more of an individual project, mm-hmm. uh, much, much harder than a project of two or three. And that's exactly why venture capital firms look for groups generally of two or three, because statistically there's just more chance of success. And I think it's that sort of like social pressure. pressure. Mm-hmm. And if, if one person's sort of, you know, um, sort of having second thoughts about how everything's going and it's a tough time, whatever, the other person can like help uplift them. So I think there's a lot of that as well. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. How do you, how do we find the right people to surround ourselves with? <laughs> That's a good question. And <laughs> Throwing I, you all the hard ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a really hard one because mm-hmm. obviously you need really good people, the, the best possible people to, to really push things forward. And um, I've made mistakes before, you know, had people in the organisation that weren't the best possible people or didn't want to be there and whatnot. 
Um, it's hard. I think ideally you start by using your network. So if you know for a fact that someone's talented, hardworking, good at software, good at working with people, probably best to start there because the risk is really low and the chance that they will, you know, want to be involved at a very early stage where there's no money, you know, things could easily just disappear after a few months is, is higher than, than someone random. Um, but obviously, you know, not everyone has a network that they can call on. So sometimes you have to just try and f- find a profile of what you want and, and go looking. And definitely for Teach and Go, picking Trav worked brilliantly. Um, for BibliU, there are a couple of challenges early on and it wasn't until I brought on um, Daniel, uh, who I'd known from primary school actually in high school, who was amazing with software. He's the CTO now, my co-founder, that the right team had started to come together. Yeah. Uh, and in retrospect, I would have, rather than rather than just sort of generally looking for the type of person that I wanted, looking at the best people that I knew and pick one of those. So in retrospect, uh, Daniel and I should have gotten together earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So many good learnings. And I just think it, it really does. It's so interesting to hear how it really does consolidate what you're doing and it helps you stay accountable, I guess, to what it is that you're trying to achieve. And, and well, they always say that the more people you've got, the further you can go, whatever that saying is, something <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. So, no, I love that. Okay. So super interesting. So talk to us a little bit about the progression of BibliU over the last five years. So now you guys are at a point where you've got, you know, huge key publishers like Pearson, Wiley, uh, Macmillan, many, many others. And you've got universities who you serve like NYU, the Grand Canyon, Oxford. Talk to us a little bit about how you just started with that main idea and then slowly progressed. Well, it's largely persistence and then mm. I think learning. The other yeah. two key things, learning or iterating is probably more the business term for it, but it's the same thing. So uh, sort of in terms of where we are now, mm. I'll give a perspective and where we've come from and then f- fill in the gap. So where we are now, we've raised uh, $4 million in capital so far. So that's enabled us to, to grow much more quickly than we would have been able to without capital. Uh, we've got 43 universities on board. So you mentioned a couple, New York University, Grand Canyon University, Oxford University, uh, Lincoln University. So all shapes and sizes um, across the EU, North America. We even have a department of the Malaysian government, which is cool, (laughs) and a medical trust here in in the UK as well. We have 800,000 titles, major publishers, Pierce and Wiley, um, and we've just hit 3.4 million ARR in revenue. So... We're finally getting to a point where we've got content, we've got a great team and we've got revenue. And his, historically, we've always been, you know, weaker in one, one of the categories, I think, if not two or three of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but where we started out, right? No capital. Um, myself and a couple of others just working in a flat. Daniel joined us very early. And we essentially uh, built a product, like very, very basic product, and that's really the key. And the same with Teach and Grow. You've got to get a basic product done quickly and ideally with minimal capital. Uh, we actually had none, built the product with no capital. Um, eventually, the university sorted out a grant for about 70 grand, which lasted the three of us a year, rent, food, business wow. costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and we used that product to get content. So publishers saw the product, like, this is pretty cool. We'll give them a little bit of content, use that content to start um, essentially like beta testing and then more importantly, quickly trying to commercialize as well. So getting some commercial traction. Uh, and then it's always a juggling game. Like I said, you've got like the talent, you've got the revenue, you've got the product and in our case, the content and you're sort of juggling the different pieces. And if you can sort of increase the balance of them, you'll be able to raise capital down the line. So we raised a a sort of pre-seed round in London. So angel investors and one family fund. And that was 250,000 pounds. That was a year after we'd kicked off. And that felt like all the money in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, such... uh, great expectation from what we'd had previously because now we had real money on the line real investors who were holding us accountable we had board meetings things start to professionalize a bit some personnel changes some great new people joined the team like Tao and uh, a couple of others that came in early Tao also from Australia a lot of Australians (laughs) in the company (laughs) we love that (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, and then from there we really struggled actually so we got to this point like We've got the capital, we've got products pretty good, we've got content, but we couldn't commercialize. And there were two problems. We were doing B2C, um, which is often generally very expensive to acquire customers and grow the business and the churn can be quite high. So we weren't really making enough progress there and we didn't have enough content either. And in our world, if you don't have the right book, obviously it's hard to monetize because people know exactly which textbooks they want and if you don't have them, they'll go somewhere else. And it was probably about halfway through that year we had a really great mentor join us he was associated with one of our investors representing them giving us advice he was an entrepreneur himself uh tom hatton's his name he'd uh founded uh refme another ed tech company and this is like what we're talking about before michelle he'd done many of the same things literally like tried the b2c he's in ed tech selling to universities eventually and he where we probably could have gone off track, he was adamant we needed to switch from B2C to B2B. Well, Daniel um, Tao and I weren't so sure at the time. As when you're given any tough advice, you often try and ignore it first. Um, but we came around to his idea and then eventually over the course of probably three or six months realized he was 100% right and we needed to quickly focus everything on his idea and forget about the B2C. So when we did that, suddenly the revenue problem started to get better. Uh, but we were very lucky we did our uh, first round, so like a bigger pre-seed round, a million pounds VC came in. We didn't ha- like we hadn't solved the revenue problem at that point, and I think if that VC hadn't come in, no one would have invested a million pounds. So there was definitely an element of luck there. I think we made a very good case to the VC as to like how we were going to fix the problem. But uh, certainly... No one else in in no other investor we'd spoken to seemed to be that interested because we'd had a year, we hadn't progressed from that first two fifty grand to the million point. Revenue was the same, basically nothing. Content wasn't that much better. The product was okay; it was getting there, but you know, it's no good if a product doesn't sell. Um, so we're lucky, yeah. And the, but but then since then it's become a lot more straightforward. Enterprise, the product market fits finally been reached, which. As I mentioned before, that that really was the challenge at the start. And we've just been scaling, like adding significant number of new universities each uh, term and now geographically scaling as well. So New York, Mm. um, 
team out there. Our head of sales is Shannon Meadows based out in uh, California. A couple of people out there. We've got our first two Australia-based employees now as well. It's really exciting. And we're, we're sort of now managing this distributed team, which is a whole challenge itself. And I, I split my time between London and New York, mm. more in New York um, in, in the coming years, I'd say. So, mm. yeah. It's, it's so cool, Dave. <laughs> I think that, you know, when you hear that kind of whole progression and the struggles that you faced in the early years, I mean, I think people would look at you now and you know, look at the entrepreneurs and just be like, geez, like, how are they running these multinational, or not much, you know, across different city countries and continents and how's this all working out? And, you know, maybe they're just special. And I think it's just, it's so valuable to listen in to, to the hard times, to where that that product market fit wasn't 100%. And it was like, what are we going to do? You know, and I think, it, yeah, it's just so valuable. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Cool. Wow. Okay. Look, I feel like I could keep going forever, but I'm mindful of time. (laughs) So look, as we come to the close of today's episode, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Dave, for the awesome work you've done and that you're doing. You know, you really are, you really show us through the work you've done and through who you've become that you can go out there and do what you want to do. You know, you can, you know, do something different to the degrees that you studied or, you know, or what your parents want you to do or whatever it is that may be limiting you or you feel may be limiting you. And I just think it's really cool to say, and and we just really appreciate you for that. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Really enjoyed it. And I think, of all the interviews I've done, this has been probably the most personal mm-hmm. um, and I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. That's such good feedback. It's exactly what we're going for. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Perfect. So our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at mm-hmm. the Pierce Project. Mm-hmm. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Well, that is a tough question. Uh, well, I think... I think the reality is no pursuit is perfect and you're never going to love anything 100%. And I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize that's the case and they're always looking the grass is greener. So I, I think sort of to, to take it down a note, I suppose, <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's always going to be uh, things that you don't like about what you do. But I think, I don't know, I, th- I think it's a sort of sense of freedom to do what you think is the right thing to do, but also what, what's most interesting to you. And it sort of, it creates sort of like uh, self-perpetuating motivation in the sense that because you enjoy it, you uh, push through some of the harder times that we talked about before, that maybe if you weren't enjoying it, you just wouldn't or wouldn't want to sort of work through those. So I think that's really it. And yeah, it sort of amazes me that five years later, we're still powering along. I, I've always been one to want to do different things. And I, I suspected that after a couple of years, I might, you know, get itchy feet and want to do something different. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's something powerful about, it. I'd say more working in an interest area than pursuing exactly, you know, building a business or something like that, working where you're most interested yeah, it's a really powerful phenomenon for any human. And I do hope in the future as technology transforms the economy and, and jobs fundamentally change, it enables people to do um, more creative things and not necessarily like 
an economic job that you do something that you know moves the economy from A to B, but something that could be creative or could be uh, something that right now today is very difficult to make money doing. I think humanity would benefit a lot from that. And I hope that comes. I hope that's the future of. Mm-hmm. I love it. Dave, ladies and gentlemen, we've had an absolute blast. Where can people learn more about you and BibliU? So BibliU.com, you can find out all about what we're up to there. Um, feel free to reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Twitter is just at Dave JL Sherwood. So uh, would love to hear from you. Awesome. We'll link them up in the show notes. Dave, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers